0: Welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. I just want to remind you that my course, The Complete Guide to Menopause, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know Your Doctor Never Told You, is available for you to take online at your own pace. This six hour course that I created covers everything you could ever want to know about menopause. Ideally, it's like sitting with me in an office and having a long conversation about menopause, the definitions, the facts and the evidence behind making the right decision for you. In this course, I really walk you through how to come out of this journey feeling confident and successful instead of confused and frustrated, which is what I find so many women go through and why I became a menopause doctor and why I created this course for you. If you want to learn more about the course, simply go to my website, heatherhirschmdcom slash course. There you can also find all the wonderful reviews and you can browse through all of the different lessons. And the first one is free. So check it out today. Uh, welcome everyone back to the show. So as promised, I've been really excited to do this menopause across the globe series. So today we are doing our very first in that series. And I would like to welcome Fatima Khan. She is a menopause expert. She was trained in London in the UK and studied at Imperial College and then later on at King's College. She now works or has been for the last two years in Melbourne, Australia. They sound like lovely places, all places I have never been and would love to go. So today we get to pick her brain, or I guess I get to pick her brain and you get to listen in and hear about menopause in different parts of the globe, which I think is so cool. And I am learning right along with everyone.
1: So, welcome to the show. Thank you, Heather, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure being here and sharing our experiences and just creating awareness of something we're both so passionate about.
0: I know. And we, we, uh, both had to coordinate this around our schedules and our family schedules, and I'm very proud of us for for getting this together so quickly.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think it's evening in uh, the USA and it's good morning in Australia. <laughs>
0: Tell me a little bit about your journey into how you got interested into taking care of women with menopause and how you became a specialist and how that sort of works over in London.
1: Yes. So obviously, I did all my training, as you mentioned, at Imperial and went on to train um, in all the general specialities, as we all do. And then I always had an interest in obstetrics and gynaecology and did a fair amount of training that because that was the pathway I was going to go down. And then um, I was quite fortunate to have a wonderful uh, placement with a primary care physician in the community and where I really learned that 90% of women's interaction is with their primary care physician. Um, especially when it comes to menopause, they're present with these non-specific symptoms and if the primary care physician does not pick on it or dismisses it and doesn't diagnose it these women will continue to suffer for years and years and so although I had my love for hospital-based medicine which I kind of continued parallel I was quite privileged I could do both I became a family care physician or general practitioner and then further went on to train as a menopause specialist so we're quite lucky that in the UK, the British Menopause Society has got an accredited menopause training program with the Faculty of the Sexual and Reproductive Health of the Royal College of and a very long-winded name, and they've got these um, excellent kind of in-house training where you see patients over a period of a year and you get to have, um, you do kind of coursework and you study them, you do lots of research, you've got to do a research project and the essential point is for you to feel confident in recognising symptoms, diagnosing the, making a diagnosis, and treating women of all complex backgrounds. And I was quite lucky. I did that at King's College Hospital, um, where they basically have women with if they've had if they've been told they can't have HRT, that's where they would get referred to. So we'd see women all over the country, and I've been very privileged enough to bring that expertise into Melbourne. Um, which is quite different how they approach menopause. And so we'll probably talk about that in a bit. I'm so interested. There's a lot of
0: parallels between the United States then, therefore, in in London in terms of the generalized miseducation or undereducation of general practitioners. In our case, too, sometimes OBGYNs. And I wonder why that is. Do you think that the problem stems with medical school and, med- and residency training? Or do you think it's a social concept of overlooking menopause and older women's issues in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of just goes back more evolutionary terms. Most women would not have survived in the Victorian times. The life expectancy was 48 and they wouldn't have witnessed to experience the menopause. menopause. And then we've gone through that over the years and I think it has been more of a taboo subject in society because we value women in society while they while they're youthful, they're reproducing. So reproduction associates with youthfulness, associates with beauty and gorgeous skin and hair and that's what the social media portrays if you look around you um, newspapers media magazines it's all associated with youth we don't really have many role models celebrated at midlife unfortunately and when they do get to midlife I think these women are prevented from pursuing their careers or their opportunities that they would have because again, they're not able to manage their symptoms because there's such lack of awareness amongst health professionals. Health professionals, when I was training, um, this was like 20 years ago, everyone would get HRT, okay? <laughs> and my mother had a uh, had a hysterectomy for severe endometriosis and a bilateral oophorectomy removal of her ovaries at fairly early age at 46 and she was put onto HRT and soon after two years this is when the Women's Health Initiative came out she was taken off the HRT. And so she suffered tremendously. Um, and that's always sparked an interest as well, because I, I clearly remember her experiencing all the negative effects and the impact it had on her quality of life, physically and emotionally. And so I think that's when health professionals started to become quite scared, this link of HRT causing breast cancer. So I think prior to that, healthcare professionals were very good. They were quite relaxed at treating it. We've always known prior to the Women's Health Initiative, that HRT treats menopause symptoms effectively. But the point of the Women's Health Initiative was not to look at the menopausal woman. It was to look at the long-term prevention of heart disease and bone health prevention of osteoporosis. And the cohort of women selected for that were much older. They were 10-year post-menopause. So when you're designing a study, it probably wasn't the most optimal study for looking at menopause and hrt but since then it's been two decades and we've learned our lessons and on the other end we know hrt giving in the right formulation in the right dose in the right way is actually very effective for relief of short-term symptoms and for me when i have a discussion with women i say to them for me it's the long-term prevention because we don't really have a midlife clinic where women uh doctors are focusing on women to prevent the chronic illnesses that happen at the time of menopause. So for women, the decline of estrogen coupled with the aging process at menopause predisposes them to chronic illnesses such as heart disease, um, osteoporosis. Dementia is, is debatable, but there is definitely cognitive impairment associated with it and diabetes and colorectal cancer to a certain stage. However, we are not doing anything about this women are living till 85, 90. So the average age of women living in Australia is 85. That's average. Most women will go on to live 90 and But they're not living independently. The vision we need to have is women driving, living independently, caring for themselves, cooking for themselves. And you also need to realise it's more important now than ever, because women now in their 80s will become grandmothers for the first time. Most women, their children aren't going to have children until their Good early 40s. Good point. Which means, which means they want to be around to see their grandchildren in their 70s and 80s. So I know I've got patients who are on HRT along with the lifestyle interventions. So of course, you've got to focus on your exercise, your nutrition, stress management, social connections, quite important because um, loneliness is a big problem as we age. So as long as those are all addressed, With hormone replacement therapy, I've got patients in their 80s who are living on their own, independently, driving, cognitively really sharp, able to function, and they won't come off their HRT. And I don't take them off their HRT because I think the women should take that risk-benefit ratio. Who am I to decide that one risk, I have to give her her benefits, which are the heart, bone, and brain health and the risk of risk of breast cancer will will discuss that uh, in further as to like i think it's very easy to follow these big headlines when you really scrutinize the data um it's really not it, the benefits of hormone replacement therapy for majority women outweigh the risk oh my goodness i think we are like
0: birds of the same flock, right? I I preach the same things, (laughs) even going all the way back to the WHI, that they excluded women who actually had You know, pretty big hot flashes because they were looking at primary prevention of heart disease and they got mostly older cohort. It's interesting to hear that similar to the US, you know, in the 80s, in the 90s, into the early 2000s, HRT was gold standard and the American College of Physicians advocated for its use. But really, since the early 2000s, it's just been a flip flop where you have, you know, a, a small group of physicians like you and I who understand this very, very very well, yet the message seems to still get diluted by the old headlines. I absolutely agree. So I have a question for you. Tell me a little bit about the population of patients that comes to the specialized center in London. How are they different? Or how are you seeing the GPs handle the menopause symptoms of women who are quote not at high risk versus those who then end up going to this uh tertiary or secondary center for menopause care where wherein lies the discrepancies
1: you know, so in in the UK, things have revolutionised over the last two years. They're very, very pro-HRT. We've got a lot of media attention to journalists and a lot of celebrities writing out books and openly speaking about this. There's something in the news uh, literally every two weeks and the BBC, which is a national television, did a series on menopause. So actually there's a wonderful. big awareness and the reason going for that is being the national health service it's essentially a taxpayer state funded healthcare system it's in the interest of the government to have women um, healthy so obviously if they're getting uh-huh. osteoporosis they're, for which all it takes is a little trip over a pavement and we know 75 percent of women cannot after a neck of femur, after the fracture of their hip, they don't go on to get the rehabilitation and they end up in an aging facility, so an aged care or nursing home. Couple that with dementia and heart disease and inability to look after themselves. And so majority of the women now in their 70s are ending up in nursing homes and that is a lot of it's state funded. So the social infrastructure is not designed to support an aging population. So it's in their interest to keep these women healthy and also remember that the midlife women, women in their menopause, so this is 50s and 60s, are the fastest growing demographic in the workplace. So what we don't want is this woman retiring no. and so they're leaving at 48, retiring, and you're losing this massive cohort who's got they, they contribute significant significantly to the economy. So not only you have to reduce the healthcare burden short term and long term, but you also need to look at the economy. So having women managing their hrt is in the interest of every single human being on this planet okay because we in the midlife contribute the most in all sectors and you also got to realize this is the time that most women will have their children leaving they've got 25 30 years of careers behind them and all that wisdom and to just throw it away because they're not getting the support in the community or at work with their menopausal symptoms majority of women i speak would love to have stayed at their workplace into their 70s and even 80s if they can manage. But it's unfortunate the amount of women take a step back rather than taking that career opportunity or promotion because of the symptoms affecting them. So the UK has got a very good approach Mm -hmm. and and the, the HRT is funded through our subsidized prescribing. So it's not expensive, it's standardized and we follow the kind of guidelines which are done from NICE so it's our kind of standardized guidelines that we all share and this stem from the British Menopause Society which stem from NAM so the North American Menopause Society so all the, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet
0: yeah we are exactly that is set, like just a bundle of amazing points there in in the fact that you know there is st- so much data As well from the United States, uh, from Fortune 500 companies, that you know women with untreated vasomotor symptoms increase the cost of healthcare, and uh, both directly and indirectly, out because of days missed from work. They start seeing multiple doctors, right? I always say they see the sleep doctor and the endocrinologist and then the psychiatrist and the psychologist, and no one can figure it out. And they also retire earlier. And you're you're absolutely right. So what's the difference then between London and Australia? What is the difference in system that you're seeing
1: so that's quite fascinating here in Australia two things it's a beautiful country and it's also very relaxing, okay, compared to the stressful lives that we probably see in US with longer working hours. And I mean, they might not say that, hey, but I can definitely compare People are much more relaxed. They've got beautiful outdoor sceneries, this huge nature aspect which we know impacts with stress. And we know stress increases your vasomotor symptoms, uh, causes sleep disturbance. So I think their management through natural therapies, Uh, which is through lifestyle, cutting down alcohol, exercising. They love their exercise. Majority of women who see me, I don't actually have to work very hard. They're all exercising five to six times a day. Sorry, five to six times a week. So I don't have to preach them. They're all very good at health, um, looking at lifestyle changes. But they come to me because what they don't realize is that menopause symptoms are not just there for six months or one year. It's not about just getting through it. The average span of menopausal symptoms, specifically vasomotor can last up to 7.5 years, but we know in majority, they go on to 60. So I have an eighty year old still going when she came off for HRT and she's like, I can't stop it. So I think there's so many myths. That's the first one that it's, oh, I'll get through it with lifestyle changes. They'll spend a fortune on doing herbs and supplements, which I, I don't have anything against, but then again, there's no longevity in it. So it's a short-term fix. But what are you going to do after a year, after two years? So a lot of he- the women here will use the naturopaths and there's a lot of natural medicine promoted here, which I'm a big fan of in conjunction with HRT because herbs are fantastic. We know they might alleviate some of your symptoms, but they're not going to prevent against osteoporosis. There's a silent epidemic of osteoporosis here where at least 75 percent of the population is osteopenic osteoporotic so we have a much aging population in terms of bone health a lot of them won't necessarily take the vitamin d won't take estrogen and they'll have all the other risk factors that they have so that's not being managed effectively at the moment so for me when i see women it's about preventing against osteoporosis we definitely know that you get increased levels of your bad cholesterol going up, your blood pressure going up at midlife because the arteries have got estrogen receptors all over it. So the decline in estrogen makes them more stiffer. So you will get this woman being put on all these medications like a statin and a blood pressure medication, then they become osteopenic. And so by 55, 60, this woman now have got chronic diseases on a pool of 10 medications, which could have all been prevented by one single intervention, oestrogen in its natural form we know we've known this for years prevents against heart disease dementia and also osteoporosis and what i also say to my patients is the main cause of death for women in the western world is heart disease followed by dementia so what are we doing to prevent that so of course you can intervene and say take Mediterranean diet introduce a Mediterranean diet, exercise at least 30 minutes a day, take your vitamin D, do your weight training for your bone health. But still, estrogen is a potent protective hormone against all these illnesses. So I can't think of a single intervention that I would introduce in a midlife woman that is so powerful in multi-organ disease prevention.
0: I know. What do you think is the either the myth or the misconception. I heard you say that there's a tendency towards natural. You know, I think a lot of women here feel like they're, they've are they failed if they have to take hormone therapy or they um, have to surrender to modern medicine or that if there's so much, you know, this is the way to exercise, this is the way to eat, that they feel as though there's just something they're not doing that's right, right? It can't be physiologic. What do you think is the misconception or the myth that you see in
1: Australia? So I think we all hear the same, they're all worried about breast cancer, okay? That's the main concern. I don't have any other concerns. They're just worried about breast cancer. And let's be honest, breast cancer is a common disease, okay? One in eight women will get breast cancer. So it's, you're going to have, when you're going to midlife, you might have a friend, you might have a sister, you might have a cousin. You're going to have some women who are going to get breast cancer and that's going to scare you. And so when you go on to Googling HRT, the first thing that comes up is breast cancer. So why would you take something that's going to cause breast cancer? And of course, when they go to the primary care physician, they'll say, you have a family history of breast cancer, or even if you don't, or if you're concerned about that, HRT has a risk of breast cancer. And there's this number, which it causes it after five years, that's a different issue. So there's all this misinformation, even from healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. It's very, very challenging. It's almost like how do you you need a microphone and you just want to shout it out and, and you just that's, want to hear that's it. why and I think... started this podcast to literally get a microphone and to shout it out, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And it's a moment- I think we're doing in a more civilized manner, but sometimes it's almost like you want to pull your hair out because there's so much misinformation. I think it's unethical for a lot of the media publication to even publish these headlines. Because morally, they're obliged to not have propaganda around. I almost feel like there's a propaganda against HRT. And this is not, um, I feel like they don't want women to be in HRT because HRT gives women their life back, gives them a voice, gives them the ability to, you know, if everyone was in HRT, let's be honest, there would be women ruling this world. Uh, and if you introduce a bit of testosterone on there, that then that's the end of men. But <laughs> I think personally, I think, there is there is a almost like a, a hidden agenda, I feel like, because there's good news headlines that come out about how HRT is fantastic. And literally after two years, something about breast cancer will come out and all these women will get all panicky and everyone, all that work that everyone's done will get um, eliminated in a space or just headline that just gets published. So I think there needs to be some responsibility that they have. Um, towards women's health and when they're published this they should have a scientific review and the data needs to be properly analyzed and and not have biased reviews of these papers that get published because once they're published I'm not even going to go into the study but the Lancet published something looking at old data and then no one looked at the JAMA article that did the follow-up of the WHI women in 2020 which showed actually estrogen only does not cause breast cancer, anything, it reduces all risk mortality. And the woman who took HRT and got breast cancer went on to live longer, live longer. than the woman who got breast cancer and didn't take HRT. And it just emphasizes- Why doesn't point. that- get, Right. Why doesn't that make- Why doesn't that get published? And it, this it, is a 20-year follow-up of the woman who were given the HRT with the, with the synthetic hormones. So- It's because what's going to kill women is, as I said, heart disease, the dementia, and the bone health causes a lot of disability. And so we're preventing all of those, and you're weighing the risk of getting breast cancer, which is increased with obesity, alcohol consumption, smoking, and sedentary lifestyle. So i rather give a woman hormone replacement therapy and say, let's get you moving, let's get you stopping smoking, drinking, and let's bring your weight down, because let's get... What they don't realize is that when they take estrogen, they'll start sleeping. They won't get those hot flushes. Their bones will start feeling stronger. They won't get those joint aches. They can start exercising. And then finally, they'll be able to function at work and feel good about themselves. So all these things build that confidence body image or trying to look after yourself, self-care, lose that weight. And also estrogen increases insulin sensitivity. So you automatically will improve your metabolism by taking estrogen. So a lot of these women will be not taking HRT and gaining weight and exercising and doing restrictive diets, but what they don't realize the lack of estrogen will cause a kind of a distribution arrangement of their fat tissues to go around their midsection because of this insulin sensitivity. But you're absolutely
0: right. I think that um, the misconceptions around breast health are enormous. And the emotions that people have around breast health are so high that it is so hard to walk around it. And I have this conversation every single day with each one of my patients individually explaining the risk. Um, And it is tough. It is tough to get around. But it's interesting to hear so many parallels so far between the u.s and some in london and some in australia although it seems like london has really pushed for this make menopause matter make changes in terms of menopause education movement that i wish we could pick from and bring to some of the other areas to me what seems to be the difference is the socialized medicine versus in the united states and i'm not sure about australia but all physicians in different hospitals having different payer methods and complete autonomy. So it's harder to gain some of that, but I see that there's been some good, uh, good strides that you guys have made. And I'm wondering what you think the biggest takeaway from that in London was.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I think we've got multiple, uh, the British menopause society needs to take a lot of the credit. Number one, I think they've done a phenomenal job in educating primary care physicians. So they hold multiple events throughout the year, which are accessible to primary care physicians. And majority of the workforce, I think now it's at 60 or 70% of the primary care workforce are women in the UK. So they ha- have <laughs> an interest in learning about this. So I think number one, education. And um, it's important to have a platform which is evidence-based, gives you unbiased education to healthcare professionals, followed by we've got the National Institute of Clinical Excellence Guidelines, which are basically peer-reviewed guidelines where everyone who is an expert in these fields looks at all the research over the last multiple decades and all the guidelines, and they make a framework for all the gps or any clinician who wants to prescribe for menopause so it talks about how to recognize the symptom the diagnosis the short-term management the long-term benefit management long-term prevention of the impact that menopause have so chronic illnesses so it's a detailed document that is available for every single doctor free of charge and they all read it and it gives them that confidence to prescribe HRT and manage menopause. And as a result, it's a standardised treatment protocol, individualised for the women, but in terms of everyone is singing from the same hymn sheet. We're not just pulling out our own protocols. And that's why it can be disseminated in the community much faster because you've got this as i said 90 percent of these women as you said in the early 40s will start seeing their gp with anxiety low mood what we don't realize is the psychological impact and those are the initial symptoms the anxiety the low mood the motivation the brain fog um and a lot of the women it's interesting will get put on an antidepressant uh for it and then obviously we'll get the vasomotor symptoms after that um because of course the diagnosis of menopause is a bit retrospective you have to have no periods for 12 months so when women are coming to you with these psychological or maybe emotional symptoms you might think okay they're going through just some kind of uh mental health illness and that's what they get diagnosed and treated with antidepressants but we know now better that the early stages in the perimenopause where the menstruation will still be irregular every month, they might see a, a change in it. So they might have shorter cycles or might be really heavy. majority of them end up being quite heavy. They don't correlate that with the mental health symptoms. So a lot of them will get put in an antidepressant. Um, and most certainly now in the UK, the women are much more empowered and much more educated. There's a huge Um, I think Instagram has offered a huge platform for these women and there's lots of fantastic doctors other than me in the UK who do a great job in creating awareness. So I think the women are the ones who go up to their GPs and say, I think I'm perimenopausal. I think I need HRT. And because these primary care physicians are much more empowered and educated through the work of the British Menopause Society and the NICE guidelines are more two official bodies. I think everyone is much more confident Mm. and they're kind of encouraged because again, as I said to you, uh, it's in their interest and the healthcare uh, sector interest to reduce this long-term disease burden.
0: It's so fascinating. Okay. My last questions I want to ask for you are here in the United States, we have a big problem with uh, compounded non-FDA approved medications, including pellet injections and or uh, compounded creams of various differing levels of estradiol, estrone, esterol, testosterone, progesterones. Do you guys have that same problem? Do you see it in either London or in Australia? And uh, how do you tackle it?
1: It's it's quite interesting because I I mean, as the in the UK, it's been there, but it's not as widespread. But obviously, when the WHI released this information on the breast cancer risk, which, again, was completely blown out of proportion in the media. That's when the compounding trend went up. So about 20 years ago, everyone started to go towards bioidentical. Uh, natural therapies, and essentially it means the mo- molecules that they're using in the HRT. So, the estrogen and the progesterone have the same molecule as our own body. And the HRT that was used in the WHI initiative study was a synthetic molecule. And because the estrogen was conjugated, derived from horses' urine, and the progesterone was synthetic, I think that's partly to contribute obviously to the long-term risk that you get but of course it was all blown out of proportion so the compounding industry kind of obviously grew i think um because these women still needed to go somewhere so i know in america it's really huge for the last 30 years you've got a big thing in the uk it's been there i think probably the last 10 years And in Australia, again, we follow more the US. So compounding is huge. A lot of the pharmacies here have a compounding unit in them. Um, I've actually been to the States to do some training in kind of hormone therapy and optimization and anti-aging. And they taught me about compounding because of course you can do lots of things. But I don't normally prescribe compounding because two things, it's unregulated. You can have a compounding cream from 10 different compounding pharmacies and their levels, blood levels and their absorption will be different in all women. So you don't know how much is being absorbed. You don't know if it's effective. The main concern I have with compounding is we give transdermal progesterone. Progesterone given in a cream via the skin does not provide endometrial protection. protection. So if someone, and if you're listening to this podcast, if you're on an estrogen that is through the skin or orally or as a troche. That's actually not too bad. But if you've been given a progesterone cream with it, you are likely to get bleeding, but also you can get abnormal cells building up in the lining of your womb, which is what I see a lot in the hospital, and you get endometrial cancer. So number one, really important that they don't actually understand when they're compounding the science behind it that the transdermal progesterone, this is why there's no pharmaceutical grade transdermal progesterone, in HRT because we know it doesn't provide endometrial protection. So it's about patient safety and giving women that they can take without worrying and having developing other cancers that is because of the wrong type of HRT. So with compounding, the problem is it's unlicensed. There's no safety data. There's no clinical trial to see what dose is going to be the safest for these women. And again, does it prevent against osteoporosis? I've seen women on compounding creams. The symptoms are better, but they've gone on to develop osteoporosis because again, they're not absorbing optimal levels. To we've got clinical data when I give a licensed bioidentical body, call it. So the the reassuring thing for women is I say to them, you can get plant extracted pharmaceutical grade estradiol and progesterone, which is the same molecule as your body but we've got the clinical data for it. We've done research to show that it does prevent against osteoporosis. We know it's getting absorbed. We know it's protecting the lining of your womb. So there's no point taking something which is not going to give you the long-term protection because it's not being absorbed or it's causing other side effects. I think when you're taking HRT, you've got enough to, you're so worried. The last thing you want to do is take something that's compounded and is giving you complications and it's unsafe. So there is a problem. I'll say that it depends on who's doing them. Majority will give you first-line license bioidentical. But there are some practitioners when they're doing that kind of more naturopathic or anti-aging, or depends what they're doing. There's lots of different names for them. They will do more compounding. So they will just compound into either a Troche or a cream. the only time I would probably advocate any form of compounding is for testosterone. If, because there isn't a licensed formulation for testosterone, um, you can use a male hormone and which is an off label indication. We're very lucky in Australia. I use, we use a um, licensed formulation called Androfem, which has got clinical data and studies. You're and lucky. it's the only one that's licensed for testosterone for women in the world. So, I'm quite lucky that I can prescribe licensed bioidentical for all of these three things. But I have seen testosterone commonly prescribed, of course, because that's not um, in the UK, especially. And I'm sure in the US there isn't an FDA approved testosterone for women for low libido. Right. Um, so, I think the main thing for women is number one, just be careful of who they're going to see. If you're seeing an OBGYN and they're doing a mixture of Licensed and maybe compounding, you know, I think it's the clinician's responsibility, but I think the patients also need to know um, that there are licensed formulations which are safer for them to use.
0: I agree. The message has gotten out that, you know, bioidentical or compounded is safer when the message is just all upside down. And the big takeaway from talking to this last hour is that I am amazed at how many similarities that we have come across in our training as general practitioners or internists, and then into menopause, and the same types of fears women have, although there's slight different things that you've seen, but amazed at how how really the trajectory is the same and how much your answers to my questions would mirror my own answers, which is so fascinating to see that the British Menopause Society, the National Menopause, or the NAMS, the North American Menopause Society, and then the International Menopause Society, you know, have been teaching everyone actually Really, a lot of the same principles. Those of us who are menopause trained. So that's so fascinating. I it was this was such a great conversation to gleam what your journey has been like in the in London and then now in Australia. So any last thoughts that you'd like to leave us with?
1: Yeah, I think I was going to say. Would I think it's nice to go and see a menopause specialist who's got a. Um, like a internal medicine or primary care physician background because remember the obs and gynae are great but they'll recognize you when you've got the vasomyota symptoms but it's the primary care physician who would have seen this woman presenting with the palpitations the anxiety and the multi-organ kind of presentation you get which might get missed if you just went and saw directly at the early perimenopausal stages so I think the message it doesn't matter who you go and see you need to go and see someone who specializes in menopause it is not a generalist because the early symptoms of perimenopause is when the woman really struggle that those symptoms will get missed and also if you're seeing the menopause specialist it's they you know they attend and keep up to date A lot of the primary care physicians don't necessarily have the time to do that. I mean, obviously, Heather, you know, you've got to spend a lot of time keeping up to date because there's always new things coming out. So it's an investment of our time so we can provide this amazing care to women, which is the most satisfying job to have because you can really change a woman's life. I think when I do my follow ups and the changes they get, I do a questionnaire before and after I, I don't think you can get that satisfaction in any other speciality. So I think I'm very privileged um, to have this job where I can really make a difference to women's woman's life and allow them to live um, a great quality of life. That impact is actually quite significant on the woman's life, emotionally, physically, and psychologically, but the contribution you're doing to the economy and, and, and the healthcare burden. So actually, I think we need to have more doctors specializing in menopause is actually should be funded through the government actually they should have menopause hubs if they really want women's health and midlife um, they just need to recognize how powerful these women is just a message for the women i wanted to have was don't be afraid i think it, mindset is really important it's a transition it's temporary but there's lots of help and choice A lot of the helplessness comes from the fact that they're scared because they think there isn't any choice. There are lots of things you can do. There's hormonal um, treatments, there's non-hormonal, there's natural therapies. But do something about it rather than just say, I will get through this. It's not just about surviving through it. It's about thriving through the menopause and coming to the other end, feeling revitalized and optimistic. And you can only do that when you seek out for help. Listen to Heather's podcast. I love your YouTube channel and all your podcasts and videos you do. We're doing a fantastic job for all the awareness you're doing because it's evidence-based. You're not affiliated with any kind of sponsored programs. It's coming from a place of honesty and integrity. And I think that's the other thing we sometimes need to be careful on social media. So I really recommend your information platform, which is evidence-based and unbiased, um, and then and then take this information and take it to your professionals and ask for help. You've got nothing to lose and keep going. Um, NAMS, I get a lot of patients asking me, do you know anyone in America? And I'll point them to you or I'll say to them, in your state, go to NAMS. They've got a list of practitioners. Find someone there. All the official bodies in Australia is Australian Menopause Society. In England, it's the British Menopause Society. There are lots of doctors who love helping women going through this difficult transition, which with the support is is very easily overcome the challenges that it presents us with.
0: I have had such a such a wonderful conversation with you. I'm so excited to have heard from your perspective and through your different lens. So thank you so much and thank you so much for the kind words. I am just lucky to, to be able to meet so many amazing menopause researchers and, and clinicians across the globe. So thank you for taking the time out every day to speak on the podcast. If you guys want to find um, Fatima, she is at menopause specialist on Instagram. I highly recommend you check out her Instagram. It's mm-hmm. full of what we also call evidence-based information, meaning she's using Education and she's using clinical studies to base these, uh, to base her knowledge on uh, for you. And I just couldn't recommend it enough. So thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening in. And we will see you next week. New episodes come out on Wednesdays. Bye, everyone.